The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. It's time to open the Bible together. What a delight to do that. As a church family, let me encourage you to open up your Bible to Genesis and chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13. We're uh, moving through the book of Genesis together, learning about the, the life of Abraham, the faith of our father, Father Abraham. And uh, through chapters, second half of chapter 11 and 12, now into chapter 13, and moving on the story of Father Abraham. Uh, as you're turning there, just to catch up a few details and remind us of a few things. Uh, I know that the, the weather's been uh, affecting us and it's been difficult to be together sometimes. And I've uh, been encouraged that a number of you have said that you've uh, been listening online to some of the sermons and catching up or uh, catching up on details perhaps that you missed. So here's the highlight for sure that we want to remember about what we've seen about the life of Abraham so far. And the main thing that we want to be remembering as we're looking at Father Abraham, is that God gave Abraham a great promise. And that promise is summarized in three things. And we want to remind ourselves about this again and again and again because it's going to come back in the narrative of the life of Abraham that God promised to give Abraham land and secondly, seed or children, posterity, land, seed, and the third thing is blessing. Land, seed, blessing. When you hear the name Abraham, uh, we should be uh, learning to say in our heads, Abraham, land, seed, blessing, land, seed, blessing. These are the promises of God to Abram. Now, last week, at the end of chapter 12, we saw that Abram, his name is still Abram at this time, that Abram is no superhero, that he is just like us, struggling to live lives of obedience in the midst of a fallen world. And one of the main takeaways from last week was that we should not lie about our relationships to our wives and uh, essentially sell her off into a foreign dictator's harem and there to forsake her forever. Don't do that, right? Now, the thing that we also saw, of course, was that God's promises to Abram are stronger than Abram's faith and stronger than Abram's obedience and that where Abram is weak, God is strong and where Abram is unfaithful, God is faithful and that is still the theme moving on into chapter 13 where we're constantly living in the midst of this tension in this fallen world where God has made promises to us. We're constantly evaluating the fact that uh, are these promises true? Are God's promises to us strong enough even that we can lean on them, not just in hard times, but always? Can God really be trusted? And, you know, sometimes the, we find the answer to that question in the midst of trials and temptations when our faith is struggling perhaps the most. Can God really be trusted in the midst of our difficulties? Uh, this week, what we're seeing in chapter 13 is Abram's faith will again be trusted, or sorry, tested, but rather than showing us an example of how not to obey, which is what the second half of chapter 12 showed us, showed us Abram's disobedience. Now in chapter 13, we're going to see another test, and we're going to see what it means to live by faith and trust in the promises of God when we are tempted, when there are things that would draw us away to fix our eyes on other things rather than God himself. So we'll see again a test that Abram faces and also another character as well. But first let's ask God's blessing upon his word and then we will read the text 
together. Father, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you that you give it to us as a wonderful grace. Lord, how, how spoiled we truly are. An embarrassment of riches, the amount of Bibles that we have access to and our language that we can read. We're mindful, Lord, there are people around the world that don't have a copy of the Scriptures in their own language. And so we pray, Lord, that in the richness of the blessings that we enjoy, that we would not forsake attentiveness to the Word of God. And so, Lord, come and by your Spirit rest upon our minds to illuminate them, to give understanding to your Word, and not only understanding, but application, and not only that, but also transformation, that we might be formed into the image of Christ. And show, Lord, so, Lord, show us Christ this morning, and let him be to us all that we could ever need or want, we ask in the power of his name. Amen. And now hear the word of God from Genesis and chapter 13. We're reading the whole chapter of chapter 13. This is the word of God. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me, if you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you, and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the Word of God abides forever and ever. 
And so let us keep our attention on his word here. One of the things that we associate with Abram, of course, is that he is referred in many ways throughout the Old Testament as the father of Israel, but he's also father of the faithful. All those who believe are called in the New Testament the children of Abraham. In Galatians 3 verse 9, the Apostle Paul calls Abram the man of faith who we are called to be his children. And so as Christian people, though we are not Jewish, we are the children of Abraham if we do believe. And you know, it's a funny thing, isn't it? This, 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 this faith business, this belief business, I think it's something that people struggle to really grasp an understanding of. So if you were to ask Mark Twain what he thought about faith, if you were to ask him what he thought about belief, and especially Christian faith, he would say that faith is, in Mark Twain's definition, faith is believing in what you know ain't so. Mark Twain says faith is believing what you know ain't so. Or in other words, fantasy which is a, a long way of saying that Christian people are foolish people because they're believing in myth, they're believing in lies, they're believing in fantasy. Believing what you know isn't so. But if you ask Jesus, Jesus on the other hand said in John chapter 20, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And so there's this interesting tension in this idea of Christian faith. So much so that oftentimes people describe Christian faith as blind faith. We don't know, we're not sure, we just believe, and it's blind faith. Now, of course, if you ask Mark Twain, his understanding of faith based on fantasy, he might say that blind faith is foolish faith. And there are also people who try to suggest that what Jesus is saying here means that you have no clue, but you just believe. But... This whole Christian faith business, this whole Christian belief, understanding, is more than just blind faith. Christian faith is more than blind faith. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Assurance and conviction. Okay. Christian faith is not blind. Christian faith is not blind faith. It is based upon assurance and conviction. What I want us to see in our passage this morning is that Abram exercises faith and lives in faith. And Abram's faith is not blind. It is built upon assurance and conviction of God's promises. And you and I, if our faith is to be growing, also needs to be built upon assurance and conviction. Not just blindness, not just ignorance, but truth. Biblical faith is not full understanding, but full trust in the promises of a faithful God. And we want to see that in three different ways this morning as we look at this text. And the first one is, you see in the first seven verses, we want to see Abram with his faith after his failure. 
So as you're looking at the beginning of chapter 13, we remember the fact that Abram is on his way back from the fiasco in chapter 12 down in Egypt where he totally blows the circumstances that the Lord God calls him into. And he's on his way back into the land of Canaan after the Lord has redeemed him and delivered him from the bondage uh, of his wife in Pharaoh's harem down in Egypt. You see him in verse 1 of chapter 13 traveling back, it says, into the Negeb. And then in verse 3 it says, as far as Bethel. And in verse 4, he winds up in Shechem. Verse 4 says, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. Now, it doesn't say that it's Shechem, but if you look back in chapter 12 and verse 4, the place where he first made an altar to the Lord was this place of Shechem. And when Moses is giving you this detail, remember Moses writes the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, under divine inspiration. And when Moses is telling you this story at the beginning of chapter 13, he is saying, are you paying attention to what Abraham is traveling, the road that he's traveling? He's going backwards. Chapter 12, the second half of chapter 12, was about Abram going down into Egypt. And Moses is recounting Abram's journey back up to the land of Canaan. He is retracing his steps as if to say he is retracting his disobedience. He is turning his back on Egypt and turning his face toward the Lord God in the promised land. And Moses is making this point emphatically that Abram is repenting. He's turning away from where he was to go back to where the Lord God had called him to be. So he is expressing his faith to go back to Canaan back to the promised land back into fellowship with God and that point is made emphatically there in verse 4 again where we see that there where Abram had built an altar it says and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord which is the Old Testament's way of saying Abram is there worshiping God Abram is in Shechem at the altar worshiping God calling upon the name of of the Lord God, praying to God at the altar, laying down his life at the altar. And you can perhaps imagine maybe the thoughts in Abram's mind as he worships God there. He'd been in Egypt and now he's back, worshiping God at the altar and saying, Lord, if my life were in my own hands, I would be as good as gone. If you had let me have my own ways, I might be dead and my wife would still be down in Egypt and I would have nothing. Lord, you have saved me. Lord, you have delivered me. Lord, you have redeemed me. Lord, you have protected me from my foolishness and delivered me back to a place of safety. Forgive me, Lord. You are my God and I am your servant. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. Maybe we can think Abram is having all of those thoughts. And I imagine when you come to worship, you have similar thoughts, perhaps. Or at least I hope you do. We come to worship the Lord on the Lord's day, and we find that God has not forsaken the sinner. Abram did not allow, notice this, Abram did not allow the failure of his sin to keep him from coming back to God. And if you have a wretch of a week, you might be tempted to say, I don't belong in church. They don't want people like me in church. 
And Abram is teaching us here what it means to be a Christian, really, isn't it? Because we come together to say, Lord, if my life were in my own hands, I would make a wreck of it. And where I have stubbornly disobeyed and pursued my own way and forsaken your word, I have made a wreck of it. But Lord, do not forsake me. I am not the Lord of my own life. I need a Savior, and I have found one in you, Lord Jesus. Abraham, I think, understands something of that, and I hope we understand something of that too as we come back to the Lord in worship again and again, saying to him, Lord, I am not the king of my own life, and you are my Savior, and you are my God. When we do that, we prove the words of Psalm 37, verse 23, which says, Though I stumble, I will not fall, for the Lord upholds me. We stumble all the time. We struggle. We struggle to live out our Christian obedience, and Abram struggled to live out his obedience, but God is faithful. And the principle in this text here is that what is unique about Christian believers is that when we fail, we do not ultimately fall because we come back to the God of grace. We come back to him in repentance. We say, Lord, I have forsaken you. Receive me again in your grace because of the grace of the gospel that calls us back to our God, calling out to him for grace and forgiveness. And in verse 4, we see the father of the faithful teaching us what it means to repent and come back and worship the Lord, seeking his forgiveness and his mercy. That alone is enough to convict us and to bring us back and remind us about the mercy of the gospel. But we find that there's not just the test of his repentance, but there's also a new test because now he's back in the promised land. He'd gone down from Egypt where there was a famine in Canaan, gone down to Egypt. Now he's come back and now there's a problem in the promised land again, this time not famine, but rather this promised land ain't big enough for the both of us between Abram and his nephew Lot. There's a superabundance of livestock but there is an underabundance of grazing land so much so that there's strife verse 7 tells us strife between the herdsmen of Abram and the herdsmen of Lot and now the prospect of strife in the family what will become of the family under strife is the next test that Abram finds himself in but first we see that there is faith after the failure but now we want to take a closer look at Lot himself. We're going to put aside Abram for just a moment and see the struggle that Lot finds himself in in verses 8 through 13, where he is allured into the temptation of goods before promise. And we'll see what that means in just a moment. But what's happened here is that there is strife. Who is Lot? Lot is the nephew of Abram. And this strife is solved in the most unconventional way because if you notice about what happens, Abram and Lot come to this agreement where Lot, the nephew, is able to have first choice and preference over which land that he wants. Which is unconventional because he is the lesser generation, the nephew to the uncle, and obviously therefore younger. The younger man, even though culturally the older generation should have been the one to dictate the terms of separation in the ancient Near East, the decision is given entirely into Lot's hands. Where do you want to go? What do you want? The whole land is before you. Look at verse 10. With the whole land before him, it says, verse 10, that Lot lifts up his eyes to survey the land and then make his choice. Scoping out the Jordan Valley, fixing his eyes in the direction of Zoar, which is on the, the southern side of the Dead Sea, to the south and then to the east as well, to the east side of Canaan. And notice 
in verses 8 through 13, that there are all kinds of details given here that it describes for us what Lot sees when, in verse 10, he lifts up his eyes, the things that he sees that attracts him, and all the things that Lot doesn't see. So there's a kind of a, a twist on words here. What Lot sees and what Lot doesn't see as he scans the land. Notice it says in verse 10, with his eyes, the Jordan Valley is well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. And so he moves his family and all their property and herds and livestock to the east. And remember, these biblical directions have meaning, don't they? Adam and Eve were cast out to the east, metaphorically away from God's presence. And so when we see this language of east, there should be something in our minds that ticks to say, doesn't that mean something about moving away from God? But do you notice this detail, verse 12, that Lot moves away from Abram, away from the land of Canaan, verse 12, as far as Sodom. And the point that's being made here is that Lot relocates himself away from the promised land. He moves out of Canaan. He moves away from the promised land, and so therefore, metaphorically, away from the place of God's presence. To the east is a move away, biblically, from God's presence, outside the land of blessing. Now, the Bible doesn't have a fast-forward button here, and so you can't just know immediately what happens. And there's a lot that we're going to find out that does happen in just a few weeks. But there is this editorial comment that Moses sneaks in there, doesn't it, at the end of verse 10? That Lot's choice of this region includes this particular place that is eventually going to experience a great destruction. What what insight we gain from that is that we're supposed to see that as Lot lifts up his eyes... He sees all these advantages, but he has no foresight to see the potential disadvantages that rest in the consequences of moving away from the land of Canaan, away from the promised land, away from the presence of God. Because when Lot looks, he sees what looks like a garden, the garden of the Lord. And what's supposed to come into our minds when we think about the garden of the Lord? Well, before, before the fall, it was the place of God's presence, wasn't it? But after the fall, the garden brings about remembrances of temptation, remembrances of sin, remembrances of curse. The garden is a place of temptation and cursing, a place that humanity can never go back to on its own because it has been cut off from access to the garden. But that's the, the way that we're seeing this description of what Lot sees. It's like a garden of the Lord. And not only that, it's like Egypt. And Egypt is associated with material prosperity and abundance and wealth. But Egypt is also associated with idolatry. The place where God curses and sends plagues rather than blesses. Egypt is associated with paganism, religious compromise. It's not associated with faithfulness. So when Lot decides to move his family as far as Sodom, verse 13 tells us that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And again, Lot is only thinking about economic advantages. The abundance of grazing for my livestock, the abundance of fields, opportunity for growing, 
not considering the spiritual danger that it placed him in. Because where chapter 13, and here's a little bit of a fast forward button here for us, chapter 13 tells us that Lot went to move near Sodom. Uh, end End of verse 12. Abram settled in the land of Canaan where Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom, near Sodom. But when you get to chapter 14, he's living in Sodom where he starts as a a perimeter resident. He becomes a resident of Sodom. And then by the time you get to chapter 19, Lot has moved from near Sodom to in Sodom to at the gate of Sodom, which is the Bible's way of saying a place of prominent residency. He moves from being a neighbor to a resident to a prominent resident of Sodom in very short time. Lot saw opportunity, but he didn't see danger, and he's deceived because of it. The love of opportunity and material goods goes before his desire to rest in the promises of God, and Lot is sucked in from being near to being in to being chief, perhaps, of Sodom. Now, here's here's a thought for you. Uh, growing up, uh, some of my family would oftentimes spend time at my grandparents who lived on the Jersey Shore, and so I spent a lot of time in the ocean. Now, I know that when we talk about you know, the dangers of the current in the Mississippi River, we're all aware of the dangers of that, but if you're not familiar with ocean, the dangerous thing about the ocean is riptide. And riptide is dangerous because you don't see it. And what happens is you get in, and when the riptide is especially strong, you enter into the sand, and you know, you're playing, and then you know, half an hour might go by, and then you go to get out, and you're way down shore from where you entered because the tide takes you lateral to the shore. But riptide is actually created when there's a break in the sand, and the tide moves laterally at first, and then combines in a confluence to move swiftly out to sea through the break in the sand. And so when you are caught in riptide, it moves you slowly along the coast at first and then swiftly directly out to sea. And everybody who's ever been in the ocean will tell you that the strongest swimmers know that you don't fight riptide. You let it take you. And then you swim sideways out of it. 80% of all lifeguard rescues are in riptide. And when you're caught into it, At first, you don't know what's happening. And then suddenly, it takes you so swiftly that it could take you all the way out. Now, do you see the danger in what Lot is doing here? He is caught up in what he doesn't see, in the danger of what will be, and we have this future sense of understanding about it. And here's the point. You and I oftentimes, at first, don't apprehend the danger in our temptations. We don't see the potential ruin that our temptations bring into our lives when Satan tempts us with the notion of, you can do this. You'll never get caught. No one will find out. This won't hurt you. Go ahead and have a little bit. You deserve it. And Satan draws us in with this temptation and we go from walking a path of Christian obedience to maybe crawling along that path to maybe standing still in the path 
and then looking aside to other paths and deciding that this is better. And so I step away from Christ and onto the other road. And Jesus tells us that there are only two roads. And the other path is wide and it's full of people who seem to be having a wonderful time. And on the surface, it's wonderfully attractive and compelling. And Jesus says it leads to death. And Lot is being allured into the temptation away from God's presence and towards Sodom, leading to death. You know, on Wednesday, uh, I was working on this, right? Polar vortex doomsday, right? But it was deceptive, wasn't it? Because it was a beautiful day out the window. Blue skies, lots of sunshine. And if you stepped outside, you stepped into certain death. (laughs) It's deceiving, And sin is deceiving. And Lot is being deceived here. And here we are learning that the character of faith is not to be blind, but to see the truth and rest on the foundations of a faithful God. Not like Lot is doing, but rather like Abram. So let's see then in the third place. What Abram experiences is rather grace between sight in verses 14 to 18. The strife between Abram and Lot is settled, and Abram allows Lot to have his choice. But we're told that Abram, verse 12, he settles in the land of Canaan, which is exactly the land that God would told him that he would have. And I don't think we're supposed to read this text as if Abram was, you know, tossing some dice and saying, Lot, have what you want, and I'll take the rest, as if he was somehow risking his residency in Canaan. But rather, when it came to the issue of land, Abram let Lot have his choice because Abram is learning to trust that God will do what he said he will do. When he said to Abram, you will have this land, Canaan, this promised land. So Abram is saying, Lot, it's here, take take what you want. The land is open to you. Have what you wish. I will receive what God gives to me, the land of his promise, the land of Canaan. And it seems that what has happened is that Abram has learned down in Egypt that God is true, that God is faithful to his word, and it has helped his faith to grow. And trials oftentimes produce the strongest growth in our faith. And Abram's faith is blessed and renewed with this promise that God says, I will do what I have said I will do. Now notice there's this play on words, okay? In verse 10, we saw that Lot lifted up his eyes, right? And he he perceived material abundance and he missed the spiritual danger. Verse 10, Lot lifted his eyes. But in verse 14, the Lord says to Abram, Abram, you lift your eyes. Lift your eyes, verse 14. Look north, south, east, west. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. It's that promise of land. This land will be your land. Verse 16, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. There's that promise of seed, posterity, children. The Lord is saying to Abram, my word is true and my promises are good and I am reaffirming them to you because you've trusted in me. This land shall be yours. You shall have this inheritance of the offspring. The Lord is saying to Abram, your faith, when it rests in me, rests on firm foundation. 
This is what I will give to you. And the Lord invites Abram to walk the length of the land, walk the breadth of the land. It's a demonstration of uh, what we call sphere sovereignty. The Lord is saying, walk it. Everywhere you go, it'll be yours. This land of promise. And as you take your steps and kick up the dust in this promised land, all the dust, if you could count the grain in the dust, I'll give you children as the dust of the land. God is reaffirming to Abram his promises, shows him grace for his faithful obedience, and you notice that the chapter ends how it began. In verse 18, with worship. Chapter 13, verse 18. At Hebron, Abram builds an altar to the Lord, and there he worships God again. Saying what? The same thing that we sing, don't we? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Calling upon all the creatures of the earth and all the heavenly hosts to praise the God of the covenant. If we gave up hope on Abram at the end of chapter 12, we are reminded in chapter 13 that there is grace for those who make a mess. There's grace for those who make a mess of their lives. And Abram's hope is founded not in himself, not in attractive land, but in his God. And Abram is accepted by God, not because he's smarter or more cunning than Lot. No, Abram is a failure. Abram is a sinner, just like Lot is. But Abram is accepted by God through faith. And here's why. The story of Abraham is all about a greater story, of course, because the offspring of Abraham, Abraham's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, took on flesh and also experienced the temptation of lifting up his eyes to survey the land as Satan said, you can have all of this if you will bow down and worship me. Lot saw it and wanted it. And Abram rejected it. And the Lord Jesus refused to bow down to Satan because Satan was offering the Lord Jesus the kingdoms of the earth if he would but forsake the cross. And Jesus knew that this is an empty promise that Satan was making him because if Jesus does not go to the cross, then there wouldn't be people there wouldn't be a church there wouldn't be a future promised land there wouldn't be a future blessing there would be no true kingdom no true worship lot chose with his eyes and preferred the prosperity and ease of the earth and it will be a decision that we will learn that lot will learn to live to regret but abram trusted god and rested in his promises Promises that didn't necessarily include earthly prosperity or material gain, but the promise to have God as his father and he as the son. And it was the same promise that the Lord Jesus would take to the cross and seal and confirm for all time. The hope of a land, a future paradise, a promised land for us. The promise of a posterity, a seed, a blessing, future generations to believe in the promises of a blessings. The promises of Abraham are taken all the way by Jesus to the cross and they are sealed for us so that we, the children of Abraham, might receive all of the blessings promised to us in the Lord Jesus. And the promise that God made to Abram was good enough for Abram. It is sealed in the Lord Jesus and so therefore it is also good enough for us as well. And so as Abram believed, not blindly, 
but through assurance and conviction, you and I are called to believe and rest on the promises of God through assurance and conviction that comes by way of the reality of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for Abram and we thank you for his faithfulness, Lord, which you led him to have. We pray that in his life we might see for ourselves a pattern of faithfulness that you might lead us to rest upon your word, trust in you, and always live upon the conviction that you are our God and we are your people. We pray that you bless us now in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.